morning, friends. Or should I say the chosen frozen? Well, uh, I'm very pleased with this group up here that you make me feel welcome and comfortable. You know, this group is kind of spread out further and further away. I'm getting to the point in my age where I can't see past halfway back, so I don't even know if you're here or not, right? So every once in a while I'll say amen or something from back there. <laughs> well, <clears throat> I am really uh, excited to share with you, as Josh prayed, what the Lord has been teaching me this past week um, in relation to our study this morning. Um, I was hoping that we would have a larger representation of our church present, uh, but uh, I, guess, I guess God is sovereign over the weather and, uh, and over our decisions whether or not to fight through it. But um, we are going to move forward and uh, trust that, that those present will uh, be blessed and, and have great benefit from our looking into the word. It's uh, a great privilege to do this. So we all have problems in life, right? Um, no one is exempt, no matter what your age. I mean, you don't recognize your problems uh, as significantly as you might when you're younger, but the older you get, the more you recognize um, the problems that you face in life. And uh, we, most of the time, most of us, try to figure out ways to solve those problems, right? To, to figure it out, to, to move past them, to get over them, um, to learn from them, whatever the problem is. But let's say that you were able to, you, you found a, a genie bottle that worked, and this genie granted you the request of eliminating whatever problem or, or challenge that you were facing. Which one in your life would you choose to eliminate, to solve? <clears throat> Would it be related to your vocation? <clears throat> uh, a particular relationship, maybe? Uh, health concern, financial crisis? What, what is it that you would pick to solve? You only get to solve one, what would it be? What would you say if I were to suggest to you that the solution to your problem or plural problems is really a deeper knowledge of Jesus. That's the genie, let's say. Uh, would you say, oh, okay, that sounds like a church thing to say. Uh, but what if, what if I were able to convince you of that? Uh, that in fact, if you will just pursue a deeper knowledge of Christ in 2024, Whatever it is that you chose to eliminate just might be eliminated. We read in Scripture to, to make the initial volley into this conversation that God has provided us, quote, everything we need for life and godliness. Now listen closely. Through a knowledge of him. So, 
to, to begin the defense of my offer to solve your most significant problem is this, a deeper knowledge of Jesus. So <clears throat> we're in Colossians. I hope you have a copy of the Bible with you. If you don't, there's probably one in front of you in the pew. I want, you, I want to ask you to open it to chapter 1. And as Paul here, as you know, if you've been here with us for the past few weeks, as he began his letter to the Colossian church, he told them that he would be praying for them or that he was praying for them, that they would be filled with the knowledge of God and his will so that they would walk in a manner worthy of Jesus Christ, fully pleasing to him and bearing fruit in all things. And I would have to say, Sun Valley Church, this is my prayer for us, that, that we would be as a church uh, to the person filled with the knowledge of God and his will so that our lives would be pleasing to him and that we would be bearing fruit in all things, in our vocations, bearing fruit for Christ, in our marriages, in our parenting, in all things that we'd be bearing fruit. And, and trees bear fruit when they're healthy. And so this is, this is my prayer. Follow along as I read, starting in verse 9, and I'm going to read to verse 20. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He, this is where I'm going I'm to start Day this morning in these next few verses. Verse 15, he is the image of the invisible God. Speaking of Jesus, the beloved Son of God, uh, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, were there thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together and he is the head of the body the church he is the beginning um, the firstborn from the dead in that in everything he might be preeminent for in him all the fullness of god was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile reconcile to himself all things whether on earth or in heaven making peace by the blood of his cross and so as we begin i want you to i want to ask you to look again at verse 13 where Paul said that God the Father has delivered us or freed us, transferred us from the domain of darkness, that, that, that place into which we were born, uh, that Satan rules over, that we're captives in. He, is, he has transferred us, freed us from that domain and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. And, and Paul said, Paul called it this, Jesus called it this, a kingdom. And with the kingdom comes a king. 
and that king is Jesus, right? We've heard this before. This is not new to any of us. But we read that in this kingdom, God's will for us, his followers, us, those who make up his kingdom, will grow in the knowledge of God, the king of kings. Paul delivers one of the most profound, one of the most potent, one of the most helpful descriptions in all of scripture concerning the identity of Christ in verses 15 through 20. It is acknowledged by every pastor, every theologian, every commentator that this passage is the pinnacle of the description of Christ in all of scripture. This is an important passage, in other words. So we're going to take a few weeks to get through it. Uh, and I hope that it'll be an encouragement to you um, it, as it has to me. So we're going to begin to unpack this treasure trove of divine knowledge and understanding in the person of Jesus Christ here, starting this morning. And I think it will support our attempts to be fully pleasing to God as individuals, bearing fruit and joyfully satisfied Christians in 2024. This is what we want, really. So let's get to know the king here a bit by unpacking a few of these verses in front of us. First of all, I want you to see that Jesus is, well, he's, I want you to see Jesus' supremacy in his relationship to God. As we get to know the king, let's see his relationship to God. The first thing Paul wants us to know about God, if we're going to be filled with a life-changing knowledge of him, is Jesus' relationship to God. This is important. Look how he begins verse 15. He says, he, speaking of Jesus, is the image of God, the image of God. The word that Paul used for image in the Greek is icon. Icon. Does that sound familiar to anybody? Icon? Yeah, so Jesus is the icon of God. This is, this is where we get our word icon in English. And this same word, icon, in Greek was used by Jesus in Matthew chapter 22, verse 20, when he was describing the coin with Caesar's icon on it. Bring me a coin whose icon is on it. You remember that story? That's the word Jesus used, this one, icon. And so what we see here is that Paul says that is what Jesus is. He is the icon of God. But when we hear that as modern day Christians, we have some questions that come to mind, right? At least they should if we believe that Jesus is God. For example, do we believe that an image or a picture is really the reality of that thing? So if you have a picture of your spouse in your wallet, is that your spouse? None of us would say, yes, yes. No, we'd all say, no, that's a picture of my spouse. So when Paul says Jesus is the icon of God, is it possible that we're wrong on this, Christian friends, and it's just like God, a similitude to God, as has been the argument of the cults for centuries? So... What's our answer to this? The answer is found in this text, this very text. The Greek word icon, in its original meaning, refers to the living manifestation of something. And in this case, 
the living manifestation of God with precise and exact correspondence, I might add. So this is one reason Paul includes the phrase or added the phrase of the invisible God. Jesus is the representation of the invisible God. He is God's revelation to us exclusively and entirely. He is the visible of the invisible. Hebrews 1.3 says it like this. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. So Paul used the term icon in this sentence so that we couldn't miss the point. Not so that he would confuse the point, but so that we wouldn't miss the point. Paul emphasized this particularly because some of the heresies that were floating around in the city or the town of Colossae at the time of this writing, which stated that God, that Jesus wasn't actually God. He was just kind of like a, a, represent, a representative of God. So Paul emphasized this particular word in this particular way, who is, as, as it says in verse 15, the image of the invisible God. And if you look over to verse 19 real quickly, he says it again, just so that you don't misunderstand. He says, for in him, that is in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. This is God, Paul is saying. Here's another necessary clarification. This same term, icon, is used of us, isn't it? We are created in the what of God? Image, that's this word, icon. We are created in the image of God. And so, and Paul used the same word in 1 Corinthians eleven seven, saying mankind is the icon of God. So how do we think about this? How do we clarify this? Well, we hold some things in common with God as humans, don't we? Like rationality, the ability to love, emotion, will, intellect. But we are not in God's image morally, are we? No, of course not. We're sinners. Neither are we in his image essentially, like when it comes to his other non-communicable attributes. I have never met a person who is omniscient. I, I've wondered if my wife is sometimes, but she's not. You know, we've never met an omnipotent person or an omnipresent person. So essentially, we're not like God, are we? When Adam and Eve sinned, many of the similarities that were stated as iconic to God ceased to exist or were greatly diminished, right? Because of their sin. But Jesus Christ is perfect in every way and the exact imprint, the exact representation of God, like it said in Hebrews 1.3 that I already read for you. The exact imprint. So when Jesus said to his disciples, whoever has seen me has seen the Father, that's what he meant. If you've seen me, you know exactly what the Father is like. We are one. So the word icon that Paul used meant that Jesus not only represented God, which he did, but he also manifested God to us. 
He is the full and complete revelation of God to mankind. That's what Paul is saying in verse 15. He is God in human flesh, in other words. And if this is unconvincing to you, maybe you could consider some of Jesus' own claims in the New Testament, in the Gospels particularly. John 5, verse 17 through 18, this is what is written. But Jesus answered them, My father was working till now, and I am working. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. The Jews didn't seem to misunderstand his claim. Why? Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was calling God his father, making himself equal to God. So the unbelieving Jews didn't misunderstand Jesus' claims. Next, John 8, 58. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Not I was, I am. Paul also highlights this reality elsewhere other than in Colossians. 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, for example, he said in their case, the God of this world was, has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Now look, who is the image of God? And then in Romans 9.5, and this is one of the most blatant, clear claims of the Apostle Paul concerning the, the deity of Christ. In 9.5 of Romans, to them belong the patriarchs, speaking of the Jews, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all. <laughs> Jesus Christ is God over all. Blessed forever, amen. So if anyone thinks of Jesus in any lesser degree than what Jesus and his apostles, including Paul, claimed, they're not Christians. If you're sitting here this morning and haven't embraced this particular claim of Christ, of Paul, of his apostles, you're not a Christian. You can't be a Christian and deny the deity of Jesus Christ. That is a hill to die on for us who are in Christ. So, if you say he's just a good teacher, you're not a Christian. If you say he was just a moral example, he's, you're not a Christian. If you just were to say he's just a visionary leader, you're not a Christian. Those that believe this way have been blinded by the ruler of this world, as I just read for you from 2 Corinthians 4.4. So, let's un continue to unpack this amazing verse here in verse 15. He is the image of God, of the invisible God. Then it says, the firstborn of all creation. And here, Paul presents us with another challenge. Or should I say this? The Holy Spirit, if we believe this is inspired, the Holy Spirit has presented us with another problem to solve. Not only could we mis misunderstand the idea of icon, we could also misunderstand the idea of firstborn. Couldn't we? Yeah, which has been done <laughs> more than we can count. So <clears throat> when you tie the word image or icon to the word firstborn of all creation, it has a strong authoritarian or authority emphasis. Paul is saying you can't put these two things together and not have ultimate authority the icon of God, and the firstborn from, of all creation. So some cults, as I mentioned earlier, 
love verse 15 because they claim it undermines what we Christians make of the deity of Jesus. They ask, how could Jesus be God if he were firstborn? Does that argument make sense to you? It's a, it's a good argument. We need to be able to answer it. You remember Athanasius, the church father, who battled this very thing in second and third century? Uh, the, he, his enemy, the heretics of his day, who were trying to infiltrate the church were called Arians. And they used this particular verse as a proof text for their heresy, their argument, to show that Jesus was created just like the rest of us. He's the firstborn of all creation, they argued. And if he was created, then he couldn't be God. That's a problem for us who believe he was God. But if you investigate the meaning of the term or the word firstborn, and by the way, it's one word in the Greek and it seems it's one word in English here, but some have broken it into two. If we just investigate this meaning, this word in scripture, uh, we quickly discover that the term is clearly a term of preeminence, not order or place in which something or someone comes into existence. It's talking about rank, preeminence, not birth order. Scripture uses the term firstborn to speak of prestige. For example, speaking of King David, the author of Psalm 89, verse 27 says, And I will make him, speaking of David, the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. Was David the firstborn in his family? No, seventh. But here he's called, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the firstborn. Next, Exodus 4.22. Then you, will say to, you shall say to Pharaoh, thus the Lord, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. Speaking of priority, preeminence, not birth order. And so, with this brief defense of the biblical understanding of the word firstborn, you can see that we cannot put Jesus Christ in the category of the created. That's not what Paul was saying, <laughs> especially since he's arguing specifically against that in this particular paragraph. No. Besides the biblical language of preeminence being the meaning of firstborn, the logic here in verses 15 through 17 make it clear that Paul isn't referring to Jesus as the first creature that God created. No. Verses 16 and 17 clearly communicate, if you'll look at your copy, look at verse 16 and 17, Jesus made all things, not everything after him, but no, all things. Is Jesus something? Yes, he's something. So he couldn't have created himself since he created all things. In fact, the, the whole idea here that in this paragraph is to, is to elevate the supremacy of Jesus Christ. Eight times Paul uses the word all in these few verses. Look at that. Look at this. He is the image of God, the firstborn over all. You got a pen circled these with me. All creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. 
etc. All things were created through him and for him. He is before all things. In him all things hold together and so on. Paul's point is that Jesus is unique. He is God, the creator. So he wouldn't slide in questionable comments or words about the identity of Jesus in the midst of his argument for his deity. So that may be useful to you when you come across a Mormon or Jehovah's Witness at your front door. Secondly, I want to move to the next relationship between Jesus and now creation. Jesus' supremacy in relation to creation. We've just seen Jesus' supremacy in relation to God. He is God. Now look at Jesus' supremacy in relation to creation. First of all, Jesus is the agent of creation. Look at verse 16. The firstborn of all creation, verse 16, for by him all things were created. How were they created? By Jesus. Jesus created them. This is why Jesus didn't have any trouble changing water into wine. This is why he had no difficulty walking on water. This is why he had no difficulty healing whatever disease came in front of him. Why? Because he was the creator of all things. He was able to do this. He has creative power. He created all things. Now, I want you to look at the language in verse 16. The the English Standard Version says, for by him, for is actually translated in most places in the New Testament with the word because. So, he is the firstborn of all creation because he created all things. All right? I just want you to to get your mind heading down the same path the Apostle Paul intends. So, Jesus Christ has the preeminence and authority mentioned in verse 15 because he created all things. It all belongs to him. Paul is saying that all things exist because Jesus created them. Paul puts by him at the beginning of the sentence to demonstrate that it was Jesus' creativity, his power, his authority, his will that was behind everything that exists. If you can think of anything that exists, why does it exist? Because Jesus wanted it to. That's why. You think of all the the weird little sea animals and microscopic things at the depths of the sea that no one has ever seen until some scientist discovers them and everybody's amazed and it's been there for centuries, for eons. Why? Because Jesus wanted to create it. That's why. And, and just the, the, the diversity of stuff that we find in creation is mind-boggling. In the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 3, when Paul's introducing, I mean Paul, when the Apostle John's introducing Jesus, he says this, All things were made through him, through Jesus. Without him was not anything made that was made. If it exists, he did it. In Colossians 1.16, Paul intentionally uses these 
polar extremes to communicate that Jesus encompasses everything. Look what it says in verse 16, from heaven to earth, from visible to invisible, in every conceivable category, Jesus reigns and holds authority. He is above it all. Paul mentions thrones, dominions, rulers, and authorities to say that there is no rival to Jesus' authority in existence. He created everything, and hence, he's over everything. He's above everything. In these verses, Paul is exalting the glory of Jesus, our Savior, our friend, our brother that we sang of and read of earlier. If we were to spend a little time thinking about the universe, and we've done this before here in different passages that we cover, if we spend just a little time thinking about the universe, the, the immensity of it, the complexity of it, the detail of it, it would bring us to worship, which is the point. <laughs> so when you go out at night and you look up at the stars, if you can see them, uh, and by the way, you can see them better in, in the Wienas than you can here, which one, I, I'm blessed by that. I love that. I go out there at night and I just sit and look, and your heart cannot not worship in that setting. If you know what you're looking at, it's, it's mind-boggling, all that is out there, which is the point. Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. That's why it's there. This is, this is such the central point of that particular psalm that David wrote. Every day it David said, this greatness of the creation shouts of the greatness of God. Every night, you can't miss the knowledge that you see it must have taken to create such things. Jesus is the agent of creation. Next, Jesus is prior to creation. This gets us thinking about something else concerning Jesus. He not only created, but he was prior to everything he created, chronologically. Look at verse 17. And he, he is before all things. Not he was, he is before all things. This is what Jesus meant when he said what he said in John 8, 58, which I just referenced. Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. I'm not I was. I am. I have always existed before anything existed. <clears throat> he, he was here before space. You know, space is a creation. There was nothing before God created it. Not even nothing was not here. Listen to Micah chapter 5, verse 2, one of our familiar Christmas verses. But as for you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you one, capital O, one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His going forth are from long ago, and here's how long ago, from before eternity. I don't know about you, I have a hard enough time conceiving of eternity, but before eternity makes no sense to me. He's the agent of a creation, he's prior to creation, and now Paul here says in verse 17, he's the sustainer of creation. 
And this, this particular point doesn't surprise us, right? <laughs> Not if these other things are already true. He sustains it. He continues to presently sustain his creation. Uh, he, he is the reason everything continues as it was designed when he designed it. The orbits of the planets and the galaxies, the delicate balance necessary to sustain life with precise orbital distances between sun and earth and moon. Jesus is literally the energy sustaining all things necessary for continued existence of all things in the universe. I don't know if you've done this, but it's interesting to do. Uh, go look up on the internet why uh, atoms don't fly apart. Why molecules don't disintegrate? Go, go look that up. And here's the answer that you'll find if you look just a short while. They don't know why these things don't blow apart. The reason why is this. He sustains all things, as it says in Hebrews 1.3. He holds the universe together with the power of his word. In other words, Jesus is saying, you will stay together, Adams. Right? <clears throat> Next. If all these things are true, Paul's going to say one last thing to drive it home to you and me for the practical purpose of applying this to our lives. He is the aim of creation. He is the aim to wrap it all up concerning Christ, he is the aim. Look at verse 16. <clears throat> For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities. All things were created through him. Where's your pen? And for him. <laughs> if this doesn't straighten you up, friends, I don't know what will. All things, including you, including your hobbies, including your loved ones, everything that is precious to you was created for him. Not you, him. This means everything. All things were created for him. Everything. He is the aim, the focus, and the center of everything that exists. Yes, the one who was born in Bethlehem. At the climax and culmination of the created order, which we read of in Philippians chapter 2, verses 10 and 11, everything will bow to the supremacy of Jesus. Everything. All people of all time, every tongue, every knee, everything that was ever created will bow to the supremacy of Jesus Christ, Lord of all existence. What this means is that everything that has ever existed, listen closely, you unfulfilled people, everything that has ever existed can only find its fulfillment, purpose, and joy in him. In Christ. If your pursuit in life is all about fulfilling some passion or desire that came from the world, you'll never find it. 
Because the only reason that God would ever give you satisfaction, joy, and fulfillment would be if you were fulfilling the purpose for which you were created, which is to make much of him. This is for him. All things created. Dutch theologian Abraham Cooper said this, There is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. <laughs> it's his. It's not mine. And, and we think they're my kids or my job or my money or my house. Excuse me? And what was that word you learned when you were two? Mine? Whoops. All things were created for him. Him. Listen to this familiar psalm. Psalm 95, 3 through 7. For the Lord is a great God. Speaking of the one Paul is speaking of. The Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. Uh Uh-oh, here comes the list. The sea is his, for he made it. And his hands form the dry land. Oh, here's our response. Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. For he is our God, and we are his people of his pasture, the sheep of his hand. So as Paul is summarizing his thoughts here in verse 16, and and he'll continue, believe me, we got three and a half more chapters to cover in Colossians, but he's summarizing his first uh, volley into their brain and heart about the supremacy of Christ and where he ought to be for each and every one of us. What does Paul do? He repeats this at the end of verse things, and all things were created through Jesus and for Jesus. That's his conclusion. The idea of creation being created for Jesus is very special and very important. When we mistakenly mistakenly believe that some aspect of our existence is our own, this prepositional phrase clears that up for us. For him. Your intelligence your health, as I said, your family, your life, your hobbies, everything, visible or invisible, (laughs) is his and for him. Everything that exists is his. He has exclusive rights over every single minutia of your life. Everything. Which is why it shouldn't be hard to be a faithful servant. Why it shouldn't be a challenge to be a faithful giver. Whose is this anyways? And I know this is hard for us modern day Americans to hear who believe that we are at the center of our own universe. I know, I understand that. But this is God speaking. The second person of the Godhead, Jesus Christ, has always existed. Theologians call this pre-existence. If Jesus existed before anything, 
And if he will continue to exist after everything, then it makes sense that in between everything is about him. He's before, he's after. What's the in between? The same. It's about him. His primacy, his supremacy, his preeminence has always been the focal point of everything. The reason that we don't get that and it doesn't come to us naturally is because we are participants in the fall of mankind. Do you think Adam and Eve were confused about this in the garden? No, <laughs> not at all. It's after they sinned and were escorted out of the garden that this became a pattern in human thinking. The Apostle John says it like this in Revelation chapter 1-8. So the, the, the Bible begins with this supremacy of Christ idea. He created all things. And then at the end in Revelation, the Apostle John says this in chapter 1 verse 8. Speaking, Jesus is speaking at this point. Paul's, rec I mean John's recording it. Jesus said, I am the Alpha and the Omega. We know what that is, right? Alpha and Omega, the first and last letter of the alphabet. Um, I, who is, who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. And then he begins the book like that. John ends the book almost identically. I am the Alpha, the Omega, the first, the last, the beginning, the end. I am everything is what Jesus is saying. And here's an important point to understand. If all things were created by the preeminent Christ for his glory and his enjoyment, it makes complete sense that our fulfillment and our joy as his creatures will be directly connected to how much glory and enjoyment we have in him. Right. In other words, God has designed you to live for him and his enjoyment, and unless you do, you won't have that enjoyment. As long as we continue to pursue our own agenda, our own things, we'll, continually, we'll continue to be dissatisfied. Don't be confused as to why you, your children, your neighbors, your family, have this gnawing sensation of dissatisfaction. This is it. This is why. His design includes the reality that when you live as you should, which is for him, you will be rewarded with a sense of fulfillment, joy, completeness, and purpose. When you lack those things, it's a result of drifting away from that course. So examine yourself. Think of the problems that you wanted to discard at the beginning of this sermon and ask yourself why you want to discard them. Here's the conclusion. If Jesus Christ is preeminent in all things, have you recognized his preeminence in your own life? Are you living as if he's preeminent in your own life? Is he the centerpiece of your life as he is over all the universal existence? Is he preeminent in your relationships, in your vocation, your hobbies, your finances, your leisure? Friends, I, I, I get worked up about stuff like this on occasion, and, and I don't want to inoculate you from the important spiritual truths by, by 
like Peter in the story of the wolf cried, wolf, 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 all the time. But it's really hard to overstate what I'm trying to say to you this morning. It's hard to say, or it's hard to overemphasize the preeminence of Christ. He is infinitely preeminent. And we're sitting here dallying around with mundane stuff? Really? I know we have to live. I get that. But how are we going to live? He should literally reign in every aspect of our being. Your thought life, your love life, your work life, your family life, everything. I'm going to close with this reading, uh, Revelation chapter 4, verse 11. This is what's going to happen <clears throat> to those of us who find ourselves in heaven one day. This is what's going to happen. My question, my, what I want you to think about is, why not now? If that's what heaven is, and we've been granted eternal life now, which Jesus says we have in John 17, those of us who've embraced him, why not now? Why not this now? Revelation 4.11, Worthy are you, O Lord God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things by your will they existed and were created. Is that our attitude today? Oh, intellectually it's there, right? <laughs> sure. Yeah, Jesus created everything. Yeah, great. I, I read it. I believe it. Do you believe it? Does he have ownership of all things you? Do you acknowledge his ownership? He actually has it, but do you acknowledge it? Let's pray. Lord, it's <clears throat> so human to bypass these things, ignore these things, and live, it, live daily as if they aren't true or don't exist. And I, I ask in your mercy and grace by the power of the Holy Spirit that you would impress these truths on our hearts that are literally transformative that will change how we think and live moment by moment. Oh God, don't allow us to continue down the road of self-centeredness, of uh, ignorance. Help us to be brought up short with a clear understanding of everything that is Christ Jesus, our Savior. Oh Lord, have mercy on us. Have mercy on this church. Help us to be a people who live this way, who long for you, who, who make much of you at every turn. And we'll give you the praise and the glory throughout eternity. Please do this for us. In your great and supreme name we pray. Amen.